This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, I I can't even catch my breath so much is going on. What are we talking about today? We're talking about the uh, death of Alexei Navalny, or rather, as as our guest corrects us, the murder of Alexei Navalny, who is the Russian opposition leader who was just murdered in the the, uh, Arctic Gulag uh, by the regime of Vladimir Putin. And we're talking with somebody who knows exactly what Navalny was going through because he served time during the Soviet Union in the exact same gulag, in the exact same prison cells, in the same uh, solitary confinement uh, as as Alexei Navalny. We're talking to Natan Sharansky, who is one of the great human rights heroes of the 20th century and who entered into a fascinating correspondence with Alexei Navalny from his prison cell. Navalny read uh, Sharansky's famous memoir, Fear No Evil. He was allowed to have one book uh, in solitary confinement, and that's the book he chose. And he wrote him a letter uh, from his prison cell, and he said, I'm writing to you from Shizo, which is the confinement cell that Sharansky was put in. And Sharansky wrote him back, and they had this fascinating correspondence that has just been published by the Free Press. And so we decided let's have uh, Natan Sharansky on to talk about it, to tell us how this came about, and to tell us about uh, Navalny's struggle, the chances for the cause of democracy in Russia, and also the implications for all of this uh, in Ukraine and and in the Middle East and all the rest of it. And we just have just an absolutely fascinating conversation with truly one of the greatest heroes of the human rights cause uh, of the 20th century. So there were a few things that to me were really fascinating in this conversation. And I think one of them is that without sounding like an old bat, although, of course, I am an old bat, uh, but without without trying too hard to sound like one, I think that for a lot of um, younger people who don't remember the Soviet Union, uh, who don't remember what it's like to have heroes in our midst like this, it is hard to understand why someone like Alexei Navalny, and honestly, someone like Vladimir Karamorza, who we've talked to before on this podcast and who, who's also uh, now in prison in, this, in Russia, uh, still alive, uh, although, and I pray, will remain alive. But people don't understand why it is that they would go back, why it is that they would lay down their life for this, this cause, the cause of freedom in Russia. And I think that's hugely important, is to understand that Navalny didn't throw away his life. And we we ask Nathan about that. We ask him and we get his perspective. And I don't want to ruin it because I think his words are so powerful. But I think that, again, we, we lack heroes. We lack great leaders. We lack um, people who have a, a vision of the world as a better place in our midst. And Navalny was one of those people. I wish we had more of those people in Washington. What else struck you, Mark? Well, you know, I want to read one section from Navalny's letter to Sharansky because it's, it's, I think it puts everything in perspective. He's, he wrote to, he, he's read his book and he's writing to him, giving his reflections on it from the same prison where, where Sharansky uh, describes his torture and oppression by the, by the then Soviet regime. And he says, In the preface of the 1991 edition, you write that dissidents in prisons have kept the virus of freedom alive, and it is important to prevent the KGB from inventing a vaccine against it. Alas, they have invented it. But in the current situation, it is not them to blame, but us, who naively thought that there was no going back to the old ways. And for the sake of good, it's okay to rig elections a little bit here, or influence the courts a little bit there, or stifle the free press a little bit over here. These little things, the belief that it is possible to modernize authoritarianism, are the ingredients of this vaccine. Nevertheless, the virus of freedom is far from being eradicated. I I think that that's Alexei Navalny, and in one of his last public statements that's been made public. It was a private letter to Sharansky, but it's been made public. We have to keep the virus of freedom alive, and we have to stop the dictators from developing a vaccine against it. Um, And I'm just 
shocked in the wake of, of Navalny's death by, and again, they're a minority, but some of these people on the right who are saying, well, you know, Ukraine is just as bad and Putin, you know, and, def- and making excuses for this. And then you have the people on the left who say, well, Hamas, uh, you know, they're, they're, they, they did what they had to do to start a battle for freedom. It's like on the left and the right, we have people who just have lost all perspective on the, that we are engaged in a battle between freedom and evil. Uh, in this world. And just because the Cold War ended uh, doesn't mean that that battle is over. It's just taking new forms in new places. In some places, it's more familiar, like it is in Russia today, because there's, as Navalny writes to uh, to Sharansky, the, the old and the new systems are very similar. Um, and uh, it's just the new system has learned from the failures of the old. And in the Middle East, it's the ideology of Islamic radicalism, which is a, just a different form of the same evil that is being fought. And there's so many people who can't see the forest for the trees, Danny. It's very frustrating. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, you know, I, I didn't phrase my question this way, but I think that, that, that Natan's answer deserves to be heard a hundred times. Um, and that is, you know, what is the low-hanging fruit here, right? How do we, how do we start to defeat Putin? Understanding that we live in a different world than we did against the the Soviet Union, uh, the Russia of old, uh, in that sense that Russia has really developed its own economic networks, its own military networks, its own trading networks. It doesn't need us as much anymore. It's got the Chinese, it's got the Arabs, it's got all of the countries that are violating or not complying with or simply ignoring sanctions on Russia and are keeping it afloat in a way that I think that that did not happen with the Soviet. And the simple, easy answer is right there in front of us. One of the first ways to begin to defeat the threat that Putin poses is to help the Ukrainians defeat Russia. That is just, it's just there. You know, it's obvious and it's easy. And and I, I hope the, that the worm is turning. Uh, on Without the, American troops, right. as he points out. Without, they're not asking us for troops. They're not asking us to fight their battle for them. They just want weapons. And here we are sitting here, and and Russia, as as we record this over the weekend, Russia is making gains in five different areas in Ukraine, and Congress is sitting on its butt, uh, unable to pass a simple aid package to get them the weapons they need. And they people just don't see that if Putin succeeds. When, you know, the Republicans are all hoping that Donald Trump's going to get elected. Well, what world is he going to inherit in nine or 10 months from now if he if he manages to become president of the United States? Do we want a world where Putin is on NATO's borders uh, and has defeated Ukraine? Or do we want a world where uh, where we can actually bring this war to a successful conclusion? And I don't I just don't understand why people can't see more than five feet in front of their nose. Well, Amen to that. I've said it more than once. I've said it on Twitter or X. I've said it to you. We've said it on this podcast. Let's introduce Natan Sharansky. He really is, as Mark says, one of the most famous former Soviet refuseniks. A refusenik was a a, a Jewish Soviet citizen who was not allowed to leave the country. Uh, he eventually uh, eventually was freed from the Soviet Union by uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, and he moved to Israel, where his wife was living, and he became an Israeli politician, then an author, and then uh, a human rights activist. But he too, like uh, like uh, Navalny, uh, like Vladimir Karamazov, was convicted, in this case, Sharansky was convicted in 1978 of treason and of spying on behalf of the United States and sentenced to imprisonment in a in a Siberian forced labor camp. He is really, um, he is he is a hero in our midst. He changed his name. He used to be Anatoly Sharansky, spelled it slightly differently in the old days. Now he's known as Natan, which is the Israeli version of the name. Nathan, um, he remains a hero to both of us. Here's our interview. Well, Natan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's such an honor to have you. You're one of my childhood heroes in the in the battle for freedom, and so it's just an honor to speak with you. Um, and particularly in the context of the news we have of the death of Alexei Navalny, the Free Press just published your exchange of letters with him, uh, which I just found so incredibly moving. And you mentioned that he was writing to you from his, your alma mater, as you called uh, the prison yeah. camp where he was. Can you tell us a little bit about how that exchange of letters began yeah. and uh, and what you talked about? Uh, yeah, thank you for asking. But first, I have to correct you. It would be wrong to say uh, the death, it was murder. Yes. Murder of Navalny by, by President Putin. 
So, I, of course, I followed Navalny's uh, career and uh, his spectacular, I would say, unmasking of uh, uh, KGB's uh, uh, attempt to poison him uh, with a lot of excitement and even admiration, even envy, uh, because he really succeeded to have such a great, to stage such a great theater. But uh, the stage of the theater was all the world and the prize could be his life. But it was really very exciting uh, and to see a person with such a courage and uh, moral clarity and uh, such great leadership. Uh, and then he uh, went to prison and uh, I was, well, he went to Moscow and uh, I received some very strange, bewildering, I would say, uh, question of some British journalist. She said, explain me, uh, he doesn't understand what we all understand. He doesn't understand that he will be arrested at the airport. And I really became irritated and said that I think you don't, don't understand what he's doing, that uh, if his struggle was for his own survival, he would never start doing things that he's doing. His struggle is for the future of his people and he will, uh, not only shows the nature of this regime to uh, his people, he also says to his people, uh, you don't, uh, you d should not be afraid, scared. I'm not scared, I'm not afraid to deal with this regime. You also should not be afraid. And that's why he felt that his place is there. That's like natural continuation of his uh, struggle. So, and of course he was arrested. And then I really was excited to receive a letter from him through his lawyer. His lawyer found some rabbi in Moscow that, uh, in Israel that knew me. And that's, uh, and I was really surprised by the power of the internet that in one day, the day that he gave it to, to his lawyer in prison, it already reached me in, uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, then I answered and then he wrote another letter, which he was writing at the very last moment before he went again to punish himself. Uh, and I, of course, immediately answered and that's it. After this communication became more difficult, his lawyer found himself in prison and that was it. Uh, but the main thing is that I immediately felt like this kindred feeling of the free person who enjoys being free in the most hard conditions. And uh, he wrote uh, uh, being very intrigued or inspired, I would say, by the fact that he's reading my book in prison, you find that the reality is absolutely the same. And he says, like, what was that is, and how we will make sure that it will not be. And he already is at that moment, like 127 days in the punishment cell. Uh, it, it was his first year. And I felt myself as the, the one who owns the, the world record. I was 405, but I was 405 days in nine years. So it's clear that I will lose this battle. And I said, right, look, I, I want to keep my record. I don't want you to win. So it was all black humor, which happened to be even more black because at, at the moment of his death, he already had 307 days in punishment cell, in fact, less than three years. Uh, and uh, uh, of course, it's, uh, it's extremely difficult. So. I don't, we don't know whether he was poisoned, whether he was killed by the fists, or whether simply the result of this uh, long torture uh, of punishing cell, which uh, with such intensity, I don't remember anybody who was spending 300 days for three years in punishing cell. As I said, that my 400 years are in, in nine years. So, but, uh, but in general, it was good to to have a kindred spirit and like from one free person to the other free person, he like continues this tradition of if you want to be free in Russia, you have to be in prison and you have to refuse to cooperate, then you're really free. 
So you are probably one of the only living people in the world who understands and who can speak freely, who understands what Navalny endured for those for those days. Can you just take our readers inside the punishment cell, inside the gulag, um, and and what it was like for Alexei Navalny, what it was like okay. for you? It seems there, there were some differences. In some way, uh, it's uh, more tough. In some way, it's easier. For example, uh, I could not, in the punishment cell, I couldn't have any book. Uh, but he had the right to have one book uh, with him in the punishment cell. I was lucky because it happened to be my book, and that's why he wrote to me. Uh, but more or less it is the same. It's small uh, cell, uh, two, uh, two meters to three meters. It's approximately what, uh, five uh, feet to whatever, seven feet, I don't know. Uh, I know in meters. And uh, it's very cold. They, t- they, they took away all the warm clothes from you. And it's three pe- uh, pieces of bread and three cups of hot water in a day. And, uh, of course, uh, nobody talked to, nothing to read, nothing to write. And uh, uh, by law, the maximum punishment is 15 days in punishment cell because it's believed to be too damaging for for psyche, for physical situation. But when they want to destroy a political prisoner, they uh, say, oh, this was wrong, you violated this, that. They add, and they, once when I was 100 days in a row, I fainted. So they took me for some time to the prison hospital, then brought me back. Uh, uh, so uh, more or less, it was also stationed with uh, Navalny. It may be even more difficult because now he was kept uh, in the prison, which is above the Arctic Circle, which uh, where at the moment, on the day of his death, there was minus 30 degrees or something, uh, Celsius again, I don't know what's in Fahrenheit, but it's very, very cold. Uh, so, uh, that are the conditions, and the person has to find out uh, first of all, how not to become crazy. So, in my case, I, uh, I played chess in my head, I understand, and uh, was trying to think about people who are dear to me. Uh, he also was finding his uh, entertainment in uh, irritating his uh, uh, prison guards. But in general, I think, uh, but for sure, he and I were doing uh, symmetrically. Is it is very important every day to remind you yourself why you are there that. You are in the middle of the historical battle that uh, uh, every word of you is now maybe even more important uh, than before. And uh, to know how to enjoy your freedom by simply not giving up to KGB. Uh, so that's more or less what you're doing in the Punch Excel. Thank you very much. And thank you for sharing with our listeners exactly what it is that you go through. I read what you said, um, and I and I heard what you said uh, when you were asked by this reporter, why is he going? He knows he's going to be arrested. Um, but I think that for a lot of people, the, the question, the question is real. I know, for example, our friend Vladimir Karamurza, who Mark and I know, who my family knows very well. You know, Vladimir went back to Moscow and I think he wanted to be arrested. He wanted to show that he stood, it was, was willing to stand up. But with Putin's willingness to kill his political prisoners, how does, how does Navalny's message continue? How, how do the good guys win? Very important in this struggle, and that's what happened with Navalny, with Karamurza, with me, uh, very important to understand on a very early stage that the aim of your life, of your struggle, cannot be survival. You know, when I am arrested, KGB threatening me with capital punishment at the same time, explains all the, all the time that your life is in your hands and so on. So if you will really feel that your aim is your survival, then you'll be broken by KGB because it doesn't depend on you. 
Oh, in the case of Karaburza uh, Navalny, they shouldn't even start the struggle if their aim is physical survival. But uh, a very early in my struggle, in my being in prison, I understood that I really have to replace the aim how to survive, because it doesn't really depend on me, it depends on KGB. I have to replace it with the aim how to remain a free person in prison. And that depends only on you, that to, to the last of your day, to be a free person. So Navalny and Karamurza, everybody in their way, had to decide, uh, had to feel that this struggle against the regime for freedom, he, uh, that's what's really important, and that, that's what makes them participation in the struggle, makes them feel free people, and they are they're enjoying this being free, and uh, uh, the, the victory is not uh, uh, deprive your opponent of the opportunity to call you physically. The victory is that there is territory of freedom which they cannot conquer. That you are keeping this territory and that's what you are saving for the continuation of the struggle. And I think that uh, uh, in terms of Physical survival, Navalny failed, but it, it wasn't his aim, or Putin won. But I think even for Putin it was the aim. As I was told many times by KGB, we are not, not bloodthirsty, we don't want your life, we want you to cooperate. For Putin it would be a thousand times more important if Navalny would accept uh, uh, and say that he's really sorry, but that uh, even if we don't agree on everything, but Putin has his case, and uh, uh, it is important for Russia uh, to listen to what Putin, something like this. If he would say it, that could be a huge victory uh, for Putin. And uh, he killed him because of his, uh, his revengeful person, but also because he lost hope to to reconquer the territory of freedom which uh, Navalny was keeping and continues to keep. So uh, I think in terms of historical struggle, uh, Navalny is the winner. And uh, well, to turn it into the physical victory takes time. So one of the things he wrote in, in his letter to you, and he read your book, uh, about your your time in in the same prison, and he said your book gives hope because the similarity between the two systems, the Soviet Union and Putin's Russia, their ideological resemblance, the hypocrisy that serves as the very basis of their essence, the continuity from the former to the latter, all this guarantees an equally inevitable collapse like the one we witnessed. There seems to be one difference, which is that Putin's Russia killed Navalny, but the Soviet Union didn't kill you. There's something held them back, something restrained them. Uh, from and they eventually released you and many of the other dissidents after a long campaign by the West. Why do you think it is that they killed Navalny but they didn't kill you? And did they learn something? Did Putin yeah. learn some lessons from the collapse of the Soviet Union to stop the collapse of his regime? And is he implementing those lessons? Well, uh, I'll answer your question. It's an important question. But first, I have to to tell you. Uh, Navalny, in his letter, in that quote that you gave, is very optimistic. But if, if you read, it's not optimism about his own fate. It's not the, that it's optimism because you went out of prison, so I will get out of prison. It's not about this. He, he said, but because that regime failed, so we have serious hope that this regime also will fail because it's based on the same principles. And that is the base of his optimism. And this optimism stays with us and with uh, his people and with the world. Uh, now, the difference uh, uh, is, I don't say how to, almost tactical. The thing is that uh, we were lucky, we were in the last years of the Soviet regime, which was becoming weaker and weaker, and though some, many Sovietologists believed in the power of the Soviet Union, and even some weeks before the failure of the Soviet Union was predicting long life to this country, uh, we dissidents knew very well how weak it is and we were predicting its failure. And Soviet leaders understood that they need urgently to mobilize the world, first of all, for economical cooperation, 
Uh, and second, they were scared to death by competition, so-called Star Wars and possible competition, high-tech competition in arms races. And so they, they uh, when the West, the free world, succeeded, for, even under Carter, but mainly under President Reagan, to, to link all the interests of Soviet Union in cooperation or in a restricting competition with the West. With the question of human rights, it was a huge leverage. And that's why, uh, by the way, you can read now, I am reading some archives of White House because after 35 years or something, they are releasing the documents. And you can see how the question of human rights always was on the agenda of President Reagan and all the people, not always healed, very often was not publicly embarrassing Gorbachev, but he was saying, I don't want to speak publicly, but you have to know that my people will not permit me not to deal with the questions we are going to discuss now uh, because, because of your situation with human rights. And that was a very important message, and that's why I could see it simple physically how a number of times I was very close to death, and then they were retreating because they were not interested. They, they were involved in bargaining. But today, this moment, if Putin five years ago also would be very interested, but he burned all his bridges. The moment he decided to build empire, he decided that's more important than recognition by the West, because all his first years were about recognition, then he decided why he has to run after Bush and Merkel and all the others, that they'll recognize him as a superpower. They are coming and leaving, and he's the only one who is forever. So uh, he's the, the most strong leader because he's eternal leader. And then he has uh, the aim, which is uh, worth of such a leader, to bring back the Russian Empire. And in the process of rebuilding it, he in fact burnt all his bridges with the free world. Well, maybe he hoped that the free world will not do it, will be scared, so on. And during the war with Ukraine, rather quickly, and the free world understood that they cannot be permitted to be blackmailed by uh, Putin. So now, uh, no Jackson Amendment, uh, no uh, even Magnitsky law can help because there are no economic relations. There are no flights. All the people of Putin are already in sanctions as to uh, uh, high-tech competition. He understands they will compete with him anyway. Because uh, So the leverage, suddenly at this moment, the leverage is much less. And that's why I believe that if the West will not make some very strong steps in the days to come, Karamurza and Yashin and all the others and a very big uh, threat because he has to know that there is price for him killing these human rights activists. So you, you raise a, a critical question. You had a really important piece in the Washington Post with Carl Gershman last weekend, and you wrote, it would be profoundly wrong to assume there is no possibility for a democratic opening in Russia. Okay, there's an opportunity for a democratic opening you are saying we have to respond with strength. What is it that you think we need to do? First of all, Putin has to see that uh, the more he is distrusted, the more the free world is mobilized. You should approve immediately the request for military assistance to Ukraine. Well, to Israel, I think you will approve anyway. Not only, maybe you should pro propose to to Ukraine and to countries who are on the border, I don't know, Lithuania, Poland, whatever, additional money, because you know, America and the free world is very concerned with the behavior of Putin. You understand that he is unpredictable, and that's why you decide to raise your level of uh, military support. And, uh, of course, uh, everybody who is involved, in the, oh, it will become known with the time that involved in the killing of the one, and it's many people, you have to say that the one who uh, gave the order, or gave to understand that he wants to see him killed, it's Putin. But then there are people at KGB, to, up to the local head of the prison, the local head of KGB, there are dozens of people 
All of them immediately have to be under, let's say, you can broaden this Magnitsky law to sanctions, not only on, on the accounts, but also they cannot travel abroad, they cannot move. Whatever, uh, there are not many agreements which are left, but whatever there are, about any types of people-to-people cooperation with others, uh, it must be uh, it must be clear that immediately it will be much more difficult to fulfill them. That people will have much less opportunities than before to communicate in any way uh, with the normal world. Again, you cannot put Putin in prison. You can't really stop uh, Russia from cooperation with China and uh, whatever. But you, uh, whatever can be done, they'll feel that the pressure on them will grow. And after all, uh, uh, the free world in America has are more heavy than Soviet Union. So if the pressure grows, they will feel it. Uh, it can be felt that with every step like this, like killing of Navalny, they're becoming bigger and bigger outcasts. And for example, he definitely is, was building on this that the world will be tired from helping to Ukraine, for example. And definitely there are, there are fears that, uh, for example, why Ukraine didn't yet get American airplanes which were promised for Ukraine to be delivered in September. And there are many other questions. So he has to see that these type of things only accelerate, bring back the West to its determination to resist to him. You are actually from Donetsk, Ukraine, originally. Tell, from the heart of the war. Yeah. Exactly. This is a Russian-occupied yeah. uh, Ukraine right now. Tell us why is it important, and you know, you are a hero among conservatives of a, of a certain generation here. Why is it important for Ukraine to win? What would be the consequences if Putin was successful in Ukraine? And why should American conservatives who stood with you when you were in the, in the gulag stand with the Ukrainian people today? Well, uh, I think they stood with me because they felt that we are fighting for the same ideals, that people want to be free and people don't want that the other people or the states will tell them what to do. Uh, and, uh, and they understood that Soviet Union is the threat to their freedom too, meaning that when they're defending us, they're defending the free world. So the struggle or the fight of Putin against Ukraine, it's not fight about the piece of uh, land, whether it is Crimea or whether it's Donbass. Whether... It's the fight for the future of free world. Putin decided to rebuild empire. He cannot rebuild it. The empire, if the world will be guided by the laws established after the Second World War, all these rules of behavior, uh, he has to take us back to the world where if the country is weaker than its neighbor, it should be concerned about its survival. Uh, and so he really sincerely believed that he can destroy resistance of uh, Ukraine in one week and to be in Kiev. And if he would have succeeded, at this moment, we were, uh, the free world would be fighting in Warsaw, definitely, in Riga, Tallinn, and so on. So, uh, and what's more important that all the rules, how we co- coexist and how we enjoy our freedom without being endangered, that will be destroyed. And I think that the world of freedom is something which has to be very important to conservatives. Uh, and so they should be should feel lucky. All of us should feel lucky that Ukraine is ready to fight for our interests without asking us to send our own troops. Doing it on, they say, give us uh, army. We, we, with the life of our soldiers, will fight against uh, Putin. So I think uh, if you will not help to Ukraine, you will set, have in the end to fight with your own soldiers. I, I don't say that you don't have to, but it's uh, better to stop Putin earlier and to be involved less. Uh, that's what I would say to conservative friends and to my liberal friends, that I don't know whether I'm liberal or conservative. I, I feel myself belonging to both camps, but liberal camp has a problem, and that's why it's difficult to feel yourself belong to them, that they think that 
progressives is part of the liberal world, and progressives are neo-Marxists. They are against freedom. They are against uh, liberty. So I think that there really must be serious camp between liberals and between conservatives who believe in, in personal freedom, who believe in human rights. Human rights are not left and right. And uh, so I uh, say to my evangelical friends who I know love Israel very much and we love them, but uh, human rights are important to you as much as they're important to me. You don't want that your rights will be undermined. So help to Ukraine. And I uh, advise also that uh, you, you liberals don't want to be conquered by uh, neo-Marxist dictatorships. So help Ukraine, okay? You are completely right, and I couldn't agree with you more. And and the sad thing for the United States is that group uh, in between the the neo-Marxist and the neo-isolationists. There's a big, big group. The majority, the majority of us are still for supporting Ukraine, for fighting Putin, for believing in human rights, but somehow we can't get them to take the power they need to move in the right direction. I want to change the subject a little bit because I know we are using your time and you're very generous with it. I noticed that the Putin government invited the leaders of Hamas and of the Palestinian Authority and the Qataris and others to come to Moscow to talk about the future of the war uh, between uh, Hamas and, and Israel. It has always been a surprise to me that uh, that it, that the Netanyahu government didn't recognize uh, what a strong and bad enemy Putin was. Help us understand how Israel thinks about Russia right now. Well, uh, first of all, I have to say that I am a strong critic of the our government's appeasing position towards uh, Putin, but it's not position of one government. Uh, the previous government, when the war started, uh, uh, against Ukraine was Bennett was prime minister and the position was absolutely the same as it was with that government. And the reason, uh, let's say, rational explanation, and there is some serious argument in which our military leaders and our political leaders believe that, after all, as our, gen our leading general was telling me, we, state of Israel exists you know, Israel army exists in order to protect Jewish people uh, from annihilation, from new holocaust. And that's why the task number one is to fight Iran. And Iran has its base now on our border in Syria. And what to do? It is weak America. It is Obama who, because of their weakness, permitted to Putin to conquer Syrian skies to create the biggest military base in Syria. And the West accepted it. And then we are left alone with the uh, radar systems or missiles of Putin, and we have to fight Iran. So, uh, yes, we have a strategic understanding with Putin that he is not interfering in our struggle. He could stop all of our airplanes the moment they uh, start from the, our airfields and going to Syria, and he is not doing it. And that's the most important thing. That, that is argument, and I have to say I'm not a military man. I, I disagreed strongly on my political understanding of Putin, and I met with Putin many times in his first years. When I stopped meeting with him, I understood that it's like justifying dictatorship. Uh, but until 2006, I met him a number of times. It was so clear that I was reported to our government. He is not anti-Semite. He loves Jews. It's such a rare thing that the leader loves Jews. And he loves Israel because Israel is Russian-speaking Jewish country. He likes all this. But his real aims are uh, how to force America to accept him into the club of superpower. And for this, his stick against America is Iran. And his hope to go back to Middle East is Syria. And that's why always in the real time, uh, at the moment of the conflict, he will be on the side of Iran and he will be giving uh, weapons to Syria, what means he will be giving weapons to Hezbollah. Then we were not speaking about weapons to Hamas. So uh, it was clear 20 years ago, and of course it's true now. And now we can see that how uh, there is real access 
uh, of evil, Iran, Russia, Hezbollah, Hamas, and what they were saying in America and what they were saying in Ukraine and what they were saying in Israel, isn't that absolutely ridiculous situation that America is fighting Russia and is appeasing Iran and Israel is fighting Iran and is appeasing Russia? That's what they're doing. That's what, I, so it's wrong. And I think after what's happened with Hamas and when it is so clear that Russia is the biggest benefiter uh, the, uh, of this war which we have. Iran benefits and Russia's benefits. Uh, so I hope uh, now our position about Ukraine becomes much more rational. And you have to understand public opinion and even politicians, all the sympathies are on the side of uh, Ukraine. And uh, all non-military assistance was always given to Ukraine from the very first days. But this uh, fear of irritating Putin and him undermining our fundamental interests was very big. I hope now we are uh, taking all these things in the better proportion. Why is it, do you think, that on the right, some are so blind to the evil of Putin and on the left, some are so blind to the evil of Hamas? The reaction on the left in the United States to, to the October 7th attacks has been absolutely shocking, uh, including to, to many liberal Jews uh, in this country who are just absolutely surprised by how much anti-Semitism there is on the left here, how much sympathy for Hamas, how much, you know, you, you described October uh, 7th as the first pogrom that was ever documented on, and on, on video. Big pogrom, not simply uh, huge pogrom. In any terms, you have to go to Baghdad Khmelnytsky to find something like this. But that was not, that people are not sure whether it was or whether it wasn't. Here it was, it was big. It was the most sadistic, the most awful uh, pogrom and the biggest gang rape in the modern history. And the reaction of dozens of students organizations and dozens of professors was that is the beginning of liberation. So I don't agree that many liberal Jews supported it. Many liberal Jews were shocked. Even I was shocked that I am uh, I'm fighting against woke movement and progressives for 20 years already. 20 years ago, I said to Ariel Sharon that the most important battlefield for the future of our people are American universities. And even I was shocked how deep this progressive neo-Marxist view is that uh, all the world is divided between oppressors and oppressed, and oppressors are always wrong, and oppressors are always right. And if it so happened that the one who is ra rapist, he is oppressed, and the one who is raped is oppressor, then then you can then everything depends on the context. That's exactly what the leaders of the universities reminded us. By the way, they said that we really have to pay them, to pay them, to pay them. The way how they explain to the world the reality of the progressive ideology of the campus is much more successful than all we who tried for 20 years to explain. Because uh, they, in fact, why they said, well, they're not anti-Semites. They, they think the Jews have to be killed. Of course not. But they have to go back to the reality of their campus where their best professors and their best students are explaining that that is the beginning of the liberation. So if it is in the context of liberation, it depends on the context. And I know this philosophy very well from the Soviet times when uh, it was clear that to kill people simply is bad, but if it is proletariat who was suffering for so many hundreds of years, and now is killing capitalists, as Lenin was saying, what to do that the happiness of the world can be brought on through such awful bloody things. And uh, when you are not real liberal, when you are deep, deep in the, this critical series, where if you, instead of critical race theory, put the word critical class theory, it's simply Marxism, Leninism, word by word. And it becomes so popular in academy, and that goes to the social life. And you, the president of the university, you are simply afraid to say that in all situations, Palestinians should not kill Jews. No, it depends. If it is pogrom, it's not good. But if it is part of the liberation, it has to be accepted. And that simply shows how far the success of neo-Marxist uh, theories, how deep it went to American society. And uh, that's something that I was 
warning for the last 20 years. And I think now we have to thank these leaders of the university because one billion people, one billion people in the world saw this clip and their hesitation and they're saying that it all depends on the context, but because it depends whether there's a fight for liberation or not. And uh, that's how suddenly death to Jews and death to Israel goes together. So let me ask you in that context, uh, what we've seen is that because of these attitudes on the left, the Biden administration is increasingly nervous about support going into the 2024 election. As a result, the Biden administration has announced that they are going to introduce a UN Security Council resolution urging Israel not to go into Rafah. Uh, the Israeli government in turn has set a date and said to Hamas, here's the date, you can return all the hostages and then we are not coming or we're coming for you. Uh, you know every member of the Israeli government at this point. You served for many years. You know Bibi, you know Gantz, you know all of them. What do you think they're going to do in response to this pressure from the White House? We are all very appreciative of the fact how Biden administration helps us from the very first moment. If you compare it how Nixon Kissinger administration behaved 50 years in uh, uh, the world, so you have to accept that Democrats are much better than Republicans. Only huh? think what we had in Yom Kippur when the government tried to exploit or to blackmail us, and in order to get from us very serious concessions on building peace in the Middle East, the way how they saw it, even risk for us it was death and life question. And how Biden administration, without any conditions, immediately from the very first day, said. Uh, Israel has nowhere to go, it has to defeat Hamas, we will help him. And it continues until this day. On the other hand, and that's why, by the way, we yeah, have to be very open to discuss with them uh, many things and their problems and so on. On the other hand, when they're coming with demands that everybody in Israel, uh, you know, on the right and the left, understands we cannot uh, exist as a state if we live Hamas at power. Simply, uh, Jews will run away from here. There is no chance to survive in the Middle East if somebody does to you what Hamas did and you leave them to stay in power. And and definitely, because, and that's why, what it means to not to uh, go to Rafa, it means that to accept that part of Gaza will be under the control of Hamas. And so, sooner or later, Hamas, uh, its size, of its borders changed for some time, but they'll come, uh, they'll rebuild it. So we have to finish with this regime. And that's why the, uh, between guns and uh, maybe there is no disagreement on this. Uh, or the other question of Palestinian state. There are many people, and uh, Israel itself, uh, beginning from Oslo, was playing and playing with this idea Yes to Palestinians say to no. And some moments in Bibi, his famous speech, on what conditions we can accept existence of a uh, Palestinian state. And uh, I also have, have a long record speaking. It. But to speak about creating Palestinian state, even in the long perspective, but today, as a result of this war, as Americans said to us, this war creates great opportunities for solving of the Palestinian problem by creating Palestinian state. It means to give by far the biggest award to the terror which it ever got in the history of Israel's existence. So there is nobody in Israel the, who, who is really, really seriously ready to accept this idea. So I hope that the administration, in spite of all its demands or election demands, uh, will uh, will not go ahead with this because it cannot be accepted by Israel. It will, in the practice, it will not change anything. Israel will continue to fight. And uh, we have finally to learn from the lessons of Oslo, disengagement. Uh, so you cannot simply now to create a new dictator who will be strong enough to regain control in Gaza, and he will be our dictator because he will, we will give him a lot of money. These types of illusions, and I always was against it, I resigned twice from the government because of this, but I think, we, I hope we are finished with these illusions.
an exit question from me. So I think yeah. one of the reasons why the Biden administration is doing some of these things, despite their strong support for you, is because they are under deep pressure from their political base, which has been infected by this neo-Marxist ideology that you describe, this oppressor versus oppressed ideology. And as a result, there's a huge support in the Democratic Party uh, for the Palestinian cause over the Israeli cause. And the, while there's problems on the right, we don't you don't see neo-fascism as a mainstream ideology today, like you see neo-Marxism. And what, it reminds me of one of the things that you wrote in back in your letter back to Navalny. You said, Alexei, it is truly sad that the past can return so quickly and so easily. Vladia Bukovsky once insisted after the fall of the USSR that communism must be put on trial, but few thought, few who supported this idea, and after all, we had won the war without a bullet being fired. Why return to the past? Is, is there a problem with the fact that we after the World War II, we put fascism on trial. We discredited fascism as an ideology. The people who perpetrated the crimes were, were tried in Nuremberg. The, the Israel tracked down the Nazis and, and put them on trial in, in Israel. And the ideology was sent to the fever swamps. It still exists. There's still people who sort of try to bring it back, but it's, it's relegated to uh, the fever swamps and to a place where no self-respecting person would ever declare themselves a fascist. But it's okay to declare yourself a Marxist. And it's all okay to declare yourself a communist today. What is, was this a mistake? And should we have put communism on trial? And is, are we paying the price for having not done that today? No doubt that it was a huge mistake then. Uh, Bukowski was absolutely right. It's not, uh, of course, uh, it is defeated. But in fact, it was never defeated. Simply. And, no, it, people never felt that the depth of this tragedy, how... This, the life of few generations was absolutely destroyed. How tens of millions were killed because of this absolutely abstract, hypothetic, utopian idea. And the fact that, until now, I think, uh, to Germans hate this word, hate this word, uh, Nazi, to this day. It's very difficult to find Germans who proudly say, I, I'm Nazi. Uh, and also the rest of the world. The fact that it wasn't done with the word communist, Bolshevik, and when we could do it, when it was all very fresh, when all the, suddenly for a short period of time, by the way, all the KGB archives were opened, then they were closed again. And it was not done. Not only because of this, but it's one of the reasons why Marxism came back so easily. But to, to think that it will come so easily into America, into American Academy, that will conquer the American Academy, and then will go to the social life. Uh, well, I, I didn't see it happening so quickly uh, when Soviet Union fell apart. I started being alarmed by this 20 years ago when the first, with anti-colonialism theory, suddenly the, the, the great idea to fight against colonialism turned into Marxist idea or their Marxist to, to kill all the colonialists and then it went to the other fields and the other fields and, and today we have all this uh, neo-Marxist world and they were saying many times you will be probably disappointed but I believe that main struggle in America is not between Republicans and Democrats though it's very polarized. The main struggle is between liberals and progressives and it is liberals who have to realize what a huge enemy to liberalism progressives are. And then only the, they have to reconquer their power in the Democratic Party. And then maybe we in America, you in America, and we in the world will be less dependent also on those crazy people on the right who think that Putin is a great guy and we can always make a deal with him. I couldn't agree with you more. Nathan, thank you for taking the time in the evening in Israel to talk to us. We're very, very proud of you and of our friendship. Thank you, Daniela. Thank you, everybody. Regards to my friends in American Enterprise Institute. Thank you, Nathan. So, Mark, when we ended the intro, you said something to me that was really interesting, because I think that there are a lot of conversations going on on this question um, in, in Washington. What happens if Donald Trump gets elected? What happens with uh, Russia? What happens with Putin? There are a lot of people, including people who I generally uh, admire, who believe that Trump will simply sell out Ukraine 
and Taiwan and a bunch of other places that he may well even pull out the United States out of NATO. And that will be the end of that. I saw that uh, the president of Estonia, which is a country that you and I have talked about, we've talked to the former president, uh, really admire their progress since the fall of the Soviet Union, that the, the Estonians went to the uh, European Union and said, for heaven's sakes, impose more sanctions. Now take Russia's money uh, and do it before the U.S. election. And of course, that was with a view to Donald Trump giving this door away. Uh, how real do you are, are, are those fears? How real is that risk, do you think? Well, I'll look at it from two different perspectives. First of all, if you are in the Biden administration and if you believe that, that that is what Trump will do, then why the hell are we not giving Ukraine everything possible in order to defeat the Russians before Trump becomes president? Why have we not? I mean, there was just a story this weekend that the, the Biden administration is thinking about considering, seriously considering giving them long range attackums finally. I mean, they've been asking for that for two years. What, you know, uh, we, we have a podcast coming out with Yaro Trofimov on the anniversary of the, of the war, and he points out that if we had given the Ukrainians everything we're giving them now or promising to give them now, and we had done it in the spring of 2021, Russia would have been defeated by now. We lost the, a historic uh, strategic moment. And so why would you not be giving them everything possible while you had the aid, while you had the money uh, available? To, to defeat them. It's like Biden has forced the Ukrainians to fight with one arm tied behind their back. And I think one of the conservative critiques uh, of him that is correct, though they're not all correct, is that he has no strategy for victory. I think Biden has a strategy for Ukraine not to lose. He doesn't want Ukraine to win because he thinks a, a, a Russian defeat would be destabilizing and escalatory. And so you've got that problem. I, I think there are a lot of Republican and the isolationist right who think that Donald Trump is going to come in and just abandon Ukraine and pull out and do what they would do, which is cut off aid, walk away and say it's not our problem. And I don't think that Donald Trump would do, will do that. I think that his views are much more nuanced than theirs. I think Donald Trump, he wants to win all the time, right? And so he wants to have something that will be seen as a victory for him. And a, a Russian victory in Ukraine on his watch would be a defeat for the United States. And he's the, if he's the president of the United States, he doesn't want a defeat for the United States. He wants America to win because we're going to win so much we're going to be sick of winning when he's president again, right? Uh, he also doesn't have the pathological hatred for Zelensky that a lot of the uh, the isolationist right does. I mean, I'm always shocked by how, you know, our some of our friends at Heritage and other places sort of mock Zelensky and just take shots at him. Um, even if you don't want to aid Ukraine or don't think we got the money for it, you know, why would you hate Zelensky? Um, Trump doesn't hate Zelensky. He said on a, in a CBS town hall that he likes Zelensky. Zelensky's a good guy because he backed him up on his phone call. And he could have. He said he could have thrown me under the bus, but he didn't. And uh, he's a good guy. And he said that he would he would negotiate a deal, and that he would tell Putin, if you don't take the deal I'm offering you, I'm going to double aid to Ukraine. So it's I don't I just don't think it's as clear cut as people think. But if you're one of these conservatives who wants Donald Trump to win the presidency and you want him to have success in the uh, in negotiating a deal that ends this war. You should be for aid to Ukraine now because you want to give him as much leverage as possible to have a successful deal. You should want, you know, this concept, you know, Trump, you know, he he threatened fire and fury at the at the North Koreans before he brought North Korea to the table. And obviously that didn't work out. But he but he, he tends to use American power as a cudgel to bring people to the uh, to the table. So if you want him to do that in the case of Ukraine, wouldn't you want to arm the Ukrainians as much as possible now so that they have the most optimal battlefield conditions when Trump takes office or even better, the war was over and largely won and he could just soak up the victory and, and be the one who negotiates the peace deal. So it's just I think a lot of these people are not on the same page as Trump. And I don't think they are actually doing what would help Trump, which was would be to give him the most leverage he possibly could have. Well, from your mouth to Trump's ears, I hope uh, I hope what you say is right. I hope the people who are worried about this are wrong or worried or enthusiastic are all wrong. Um, I guess we will uh, we will see all too soon. And just a reminder to our listeners, as Mark said, the 24th of February is the second year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we have recorded a really terrific uh, interview with uh, Yaroslav Trofimov. Wall Street Journal chief diplomatic correspondent about his new book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion in Ukraine's War of Independence. It's a fantastic book. I commend it to all of you. So we will have two what the hell's this week for the price of one. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Indeed. Okay. What the bloody hell, let's call it. And with that, thank you, everybody, for being with us. Take care. We'll see you later this week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.